to Trennis Magnus, Jabs Reality, where our motto is, there's no you in team either, jackass. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and clearly I make it all up as I go along. But what I'm supposed to tell you is that I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. At least in Trennis Magnus Punch's reality, but in Trennis Magnus Jab's reality, I get to talk about anything I want, whether that be comics, movies, and TV shows, or anything else. And guys, <clears throat> the reason that I've done it that way is because, let's face it, there are instances where what I have to say doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself, I suppose, to an episode of Trennis Magnus Punch's reality or maybe just the timing of things really won't allow for something to be an episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, and so that's why I do things this way. Anyway, <clears throat> the, uh, excuse me, by the way, I'm sorry that this happens, but it's like the instant I start podcasting, something goes wrong with my throat, and then you hear me clearing my throat a lot, and I do apologize for that if there was some way to fix that forever. Believe me, doing so would be my pleasure, but it... Anyway, that's just how things work. Now, excuse me while I get a drink of my water here. <clears throat> Alright. Now, what happened was, guys, a couple of days ago, uh, I received a little bit of feedback from... Well, we'll get to who it's from in just a minute, but I received a little bit of feedback a couple of days ago, and... I decided that what I wanted to do was just shine a spotlight on this particular email and just spend a little bit of time with it, right? Because obviously I'm going to be talking about Joker. And what happened was, guys, after I released my uh, Joker first impressions episode, I figured, you know what, that's going to be kind of it for a while when it comes to Joker discussion from me because the the movie seemed to be generating uh, I don't know if controversy is the right word but it was generating a lot of something it was getting a lot of attention there was a lot of discussion about it and I didn't want to I didn't want to add to anybody's sense of Joker burnout right so there's that but the other thing was I, at least for the time being, I thought that I kind of said my piece about Joker, and so anything else that I had to say, eh, you know what, probably it can wait until after the, the Blu-ray comes out, and then that might not be a bad time to revisit the subject. And to the extent that there was any plan at all, that was the plan. What I didn't count on was getting uh, feedback from longtime listener of the show, and I might say fairly regular contribute, like financial contributor to the show, uh, Doug Meacham. And what happened was he had a chance to see Joker, and he wanted to send me his thoughts. And I thought, okay, well, you know what, Doug, if you're going to go to all the trouble of sending me an email about Joker and, you know, really putting some thought into it. Because Doug is a pretty thoughtful guy, you know, so if he's got something to say, maybe you should listen to it. So, anyway, so if he's going to go to all the trouble of doing that, I kind of wanted to... I didn't want this to just be yet another piece of feedback that I read in some 
uh, feedback segment, I wanted to shine the spotlight on this a little bit, you know? So that was the idea. So Doug agreed to that. He thought that sounded like a not terrible idea, I suppose. So he went ahead, typed up his thoughts, and sent them to me. And so I'm going to react to those things right now. Again, this is from Doug Meacham, sent on October the 23rd. And Doug writes, Hello, Your Excellency. You asked me to send some initial thoughts about the film Joker, so in the words of Heath Ledger's version, here we go. And from there, he sort of just lists off a bunch of different bullet points. So first up, I loved the old school opening Warner Brothers logo. I hadn't seen it since Superman the movie. It was a great homage and an awesome way to immediately tell the viewer that this is not set in the current day DCEU. <clears throat> and Doug, I'm going to just kind of uh, piggyback on that and say I very much agree with that. I very much like the old school logo. I just like it when movies have that. I don't know if you, Doug, if you've ever seen uh, the, I think it's David Fincher, uh, the David Fincher film Zodiac. But it had sort of, it, I don't think it was Warner Brothers, but it, uh, whatever movie studio that was, it had a sort of a, a vintage uh, movie studio title card at the beginning of it. And it was, obviously the movie itself is set in primarily in the 60s and the 70s. There's this tiny little bit that takes place in the 90s. But by and large, it, it takes place in the 60s and the 70s. But more specifically than that, Doug, the movie stylistically, I think, is is very comparable to that uh, crop of 1970s new Hollywood films. It's it's very much, I think, in that sort of sort of milieu. And so there's some honesty with that in terms of the the period in which the film takes place. But there's also some, there's also a kind of a stylistic sort of dividend on the other side where it's not just in the 60s and the 70s. It's in terms of the tone and the style of it. It is very much of the 70s, even though it was released like in 2007 or something like that. But the style of it is definitely 70s. And honestly, I think that, same essential thing to your point. I think that same essential thing can be said about Joker, where I think it, uh, I think it actually takes place in, I think officially it takes place in 1981. And that is what the Warner Brothers title card looked like at that time. And it does have this sort of, it's, it's not a completely perfect matchup because that kind of red, black and white uh, Warner Brothers logo, to me that just seems very 80s. Whereas the mo the the style of the movies, I think, is a little bit closer to the 70s. Again, that sort of new Hollywood thing, and so I don't think it's quite as perfect for Joker as it is for, again, Zodiac. But still, I I think it actually works really well. Oddly enough, that's actually one of the highlights of the film for me. And if you if you just say that to a regular person that the title card, the movie studio title card is one of the high points of the film for you. 
I think most times, or at least most people, would look at you kind of funny. You know, you're, you know, eyes sideways, definitely on that one. But being as we're all geeks, I, I, I like to think that we're all kind of coming from the same place here. There are people out there whose biggest complaint, Doug, as you may know, is their biggest complaint with uh, the new Star Wars films coming out now is the lack of the 20th Century Fox fanfare at the start. For them, that is a crucial part of the Star Wars experience and the fact that the Disney films heretofore have lacked them. That's really not so good. Now, Doug, I'm not going to sit here and spin some bullshit conspiracy theory for you and or you know or anything like that but i am going to say that at least in theory future star wars films could once again have that 20th century fox fanfare at the beginning and i'm not going to sit here doug like i say i'm not going to sit here and tell you that's the reason that disney bought fox but um i i think i will suggest that maybe that was a factor you know Maybe that colored Disney's decision a little bit, you know? It may have been a small factor. I'm willing to consider that. But maybe that was a factor, you know? The fact that once they own Fox, future, uh, future Star Wars films, at least in theory, might be able to have the, the 20th Century Fox fanfare at the front. Maybe that had something to do with it. Again, I'm not going to say that was the only consideration then maybe that was a consideration. I don't know. But my point is that I think that things like that really are important to our fraternity of, of, let's just say it, we're geeks. And yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I agree that that was just a great... Again, it's weird to say that the title card is a great part of the movie, but in this case, it was. So anyway, moving right along, uh, Doug writes... Which brings me to the gritty 70s NYC style of Gotham. It fit the tone of the film really well, and it got me thinking that it'd be nice to see DC put out more films like these set in different eras, because clearly this film is a 70s period piece. I'm going to put your email back on pause, Doug, and say, A freaking men, all right? I, for one, would love to see like a 1930s uh, Superman, and I mean like a very golden age, Superman, uh, not just Superman set in the 1930s just because, but specifically a Golden Age Superman film set specifically in the, ni- in the 1930s. I think the possibilities are virtually endless with that, you know? And being as it's the Golden Age Superman, you can maybe get away with having uh, sort of a reduced scale of superpowers that maybe nothing less than a bursting shell can penetrate his skin and maybe he'll he'll look at a non-coming freight train and and tell somebody you fool you'll get us both killed you know and and maybe he can't fly maybe he can just jump really fucking far you know and stuff like that um and i i you know actually and now that i think about it i think i actually released an episode of trinus magnus jabs reality specifically about that you know i think i suggested yeah, you know what, it, Doug, it's actually, you know what, it's coming back to me now. I think I suggested, like, a Superman film set in the 30s, maybe Sandman set in the 1940s, like Wesley Dodd, right? 
uh, Sandman set in the 1940s, maybe the Flash set in the 1950s or the 60s, Batman in the 70s, just so on and so on. I really do think that the way that the way that it is right now, at least in my opinion, Marvel has a virtual monopoly on the concept of a shared superhero universe and big screen live action film. And I think anything that Warner Brothers does to try to align DC characters as competitors to Marvel in that way of having this big, sprawling uh, uh live action, big screen, cinematic universe, it's just going to be seen as derivative. Whether or not that's true or not, whether that's fair or not, I think that's the way that a lot of the movie going public is going to see it, you know? But if Warner Brothers goes sort of the other direction with uh, DC characters where they have just these, they don't even necessarily have to be standalone films, right? They can just be period pieces that they exist independently of one another. And they can be like, they can be standalone or maybe they can all take place in the same universe, just separated from one another by decades, just on and on and on. You know, there are just so many different ways of doing this. And to your point, Doug, what I at least hope for from all of this is that some bean counter at Warner Brothers realizes, you know what? People do care about these characters. People do want to see these DC characters, but they don't necessarily want us to compete directly against Marvel. So maybe what we can do is just kind of follow the Joker pattern here of just telling these just sort of, I'm trying not to say standalone, but that seems to be the best way to say it. These sort of standalone films or at least standalone characters that don't really interact with any other DC characters and, Doug, when you think about it, that was the 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 way that DC characters were shown on film for decades. I mean, uh, Batman existed in his own universe. You know, the the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher, and Chris Nolan uh, Batman films all existed in their own universe. The Christopher Reeve Superman movies, and God help us all, Superman Returns, they all existed in their in, in their own sort of immaculate universes where presumably other superheroes didn't really exist. I mean, you got the idea that other superhero characters might have existed, at least in the Schumacher Batman films. Superman, at the least, did. Other characters, I don't know. You can make some inferences on that. I don't know. But, you know, the point is, there are ways of doing this that Warner Brothers, oddly enough, they've got a long and established track record of doing and with uh, Joker, they've now got yet another example that they can point to of doing these doing these types of movies as sort of standalone pieces. They're their own things. They exist in their own worlds. And they don't have to tie into some bigger, sprawling storyline that's going on. I would very much love to see that. And the thing is, you can do stories like that on a relatively low budget, you know? I think Justice League, with all the different reshoots and everything that happened, I think the final price tag for that film was like in excess of 300 fucking million dollars. And Doug, I don't think that approach is going to benefit DC Comics characters at this point. I mean, look, maybe 10 years ago, maybe it would have. 
I don't know, but I don't think it will now. And I think whether anyone likes Joker or not, it does kind of point the way this is sort of an example that Warner Brothers can follow going forward. Maybe we can take the same basic idea and apply it to other characters. And to kind of tie it back in with your email, Doug, that's kind of what I'm hoping for here. That's that's very much what I want to see. So anyway. Moving on, uh, Doug goes on to write, uh, just when you thought the Joker couldn't possibly be portrayed another way in film, at least that's what I thought until I saw the previews for this one, Joaquin Phoenix gives us what I, be- what I believe to be the most sympathetic Joker yet. He's part Heath Ledger in Instigating Anarchy, but he has a more deep and personal reason for doing so. You feel for him because of his mental illness and how he was treated as a child. There was also a little bit of Mark Hamill's Joker, given the fact that he had a different that he had different styles of laughter. And Doug, I'm putting your email back on pause here to say that what I like about Arthur Fleck as a character is the fact that the guy just snapped. Okay, he he got beat up by those kids at the beginning of the movie that stole his street sign, and so. You get the idea based on, you know, the fact that he was laying on the ground and he was sort of curled up in a ball. He was covering up his junk. He was covering his chest. He was basically trying to cover the things that are the most important, the most vulnerable, and a little bit trying to cover his head and all that. This is not the first time that something like this has happened to him. This is not the first time that he's gotten the shit kicked out of him when he's on the job. And so, spoiler alert, but when he's riding around on the subway and the the Wayne Enterprises executives, you know, beat the shit out of him a little bit, and then he perforates two of them on the spot, that's the moment that he just kind of snapped. He started fighting back against the world. And I think that was just about as far as his agenda really went at that time. But what ended up happening was he, I think unwittingly, started a little bit of this uh, 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 revolution, this sort of take to the action, or rather take to the street uh, sort of uh, protest action from other downtrodden types in Gotham City. He didn't set out to, this was not the reaction he was aiming for, but he'll take it, you know? And so that's what I think was going on. He basically he got fed up and so he said fuck it and blew some people away and that created a reaction again not the reaction he was hoping for but a reaction that he was willing to accept anyway and and so he ends up becoming the unintentional leader of this little revolution and we're going to circle back to this in a minute because you make some other uh, comments that I think I can sort of extend this out to, but I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, I very much liked that. You know, the fact is, I don't think that Arthur truly becomes the Joker until the very end of the movie where he's standing on top of the police cruiser. And now he is officially no longer Arthur Fleck wearing makeup. He really is the Joker now. And that's the perfect moment for the movie to end. And I I just, I really like that. You know, there is, I kind of like the way that you say it too, because there's a a sympathetic quality that Arthur has 
He is mentally ill. That's not his fault. Um, he was abused whenever he was a kid. That is not his fault. Um, he is... I don't even know how else to put it, except almost to say, like, miscast in a play. He's been kind of programmed to think that he's supposed to be, you know, a song and dance man. He's supposed to be an entertainer who brings joy to the world. And he just doesn't have that in his makeup. But he feels like he's a slave to that. That's not his fault. He's been picked on and pushed down by society. That's not his fault, you know. And so it's like, on the one hand, we cannot countenance murder. But on the other hand, I mean, look, this guy has been shit on by virtually the entire city. None of this is his fault. And so I, I just like the fact that what this movie does, I think, is kind of shine a light on how American society really does mistreat and ignore the mentally ill. And so when these people lash out because they're not having their needs satisfied, they end up getting vilified. And again, I mean, we cannot excuse murder. We cannot condone murder. We cannot countenance murder. But it's like at the same time, you know, what the fuck did anybody think was ever going to happen except that these people that are already teetering on the brink as it is through no fault of their own now get beaten down by life such that they think violence is the only solution that makes sense in the kind of crazy wackadoo world that they live in. You know, I just like the fact that people are talking about that, you know, and Doug, I don't want to sit here and preach at you, but I just, I kind of appreciate the fact that the movie has kind of started conversations about stuff like that. People are asking themselves, uh, I think very meaningful, very deep questions about, well, what should we do with the mentally ill? And I'm not, I'm not here to, to tell you that I've got all the answers because believe me, I don't. But what I do know is that what we've been doing doesn't fucking work. So what else might be a possibility? So anyway, I, I like it just for that reason. But as you say, there's a sympathetic element to the way that Arthur is shown and depicted in the, in the film, never to the point where you identify with him. But as you say, Doug, he's sympathetic in certain key ways. And like you, I just dig that about the movie. So anyway, moving right along. Thomas Wayne for the, Doug writes, Thomas Wayne for the first time, to the best of my knowledge, is portrayed as a dick. And if what Arthur's mother claimed about him was true, then he's a downright monster. And I'm going to put this on pause and say, uh, Doug, I think the movie goes, it, it, it makes it pretty clear that uh, Penny Fleck, she's not lying, but she's got issues of her own. And the fact is, Arthur is not Thomas Wayne's illegitimate son, you know? Penny is just a little bit loopy, that's all. But no, that's that's not... At least that's what I took from it. And it seems like that's what other people have taken from it as well. So I think that's what the movie's trying to say. But anyway, Doug goes on to say, Covering up their affair uh, by committing her and having her lobotomized is just evil. My girlfriend had to remind me that that last bit was in her Arkham files because it was a blink and you'll miss it moment. Also, and you may not agree with this, Thomas is also sort of paralleled to Trump, a rich businessman running for office, trying to do what he feels is good for the city 
and being hated for it. And Doug, um, on that note, I'm going to put your email on pause and say, on that note, I, I don't know that I completely agree with that. Um, first off, the, the parallels to, to Trump, I think, kind of speak for themselves. Now, Doug, I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but Alec Baldwin was originally set to play uh, Thomas Wayne in the movie, and obviously that ended up never happening. And I can't help thinking that the reason he ultimately left the, uh, the film, people say, oh, well, there were scheduling difficulties. That's just political bullshit, okay? I don't buy that for one minute. I think Baldwin realized that the way that Thomas Wayne is portrayed in the movie, as you say, he's very much this Trump sort of figure. And I don't think Alec Baldwin wants to... Look, it's one thing to do that on Saturday Night Live, but I don't think Alec Baldwin necessarily wants to be thought of as the Trump impersonator and just have that branding following him around for the rest of his career. And so I think that's the real reason that he ended up leaving the movie. But And of course, I'm blanking on the actor's name now, but I think whatever that actor's name is, he did a fine job. And you are right that there's there are a lot of sort of Trump qualities that are going on with that. But I think the, the main difference is the way that Thomas Wayne is, uh, he, he's presented in, in the movie. I don't think he's necessarily out to make things better for the city. I think the guy's basically just an asshole and he's running for office basically for asshole reasons. He wants to, uh, make his own life better. He wants to make life better for, you know, his his uh, rich billionaire asshole buddies. But he's not. He doesn't necessarily have the city's best interests at heart, you know. And you know, I may be the only one who who feels this way. I don't think that's the reason that Trump ran for for president. You know, uh, so with that, I do think I'm disagreeing with you. I. What I'm saying is I think Thomas Wayne in the movie is basically an asshole and he's not, he does not have the greater good in mind when he, when he runs for office. Whereas I think Donald Trump, yeah, the guy may be kind of an asshole, but I think he does actually have what he at least thinks is, is the greater good in mind in, in running for president and then being elected president. So Anyway, yeah, so I mean, I do, I, I think only an idiot at this point would deny the parallels between Thomas Wayne in the movie, running for mayor, and Donald Trump, the real guy running for president. I don't really think that's deniable at this point, but I just have very different perceptions of Thomas Wayne in the movie versus Donald Trump in real life. So I, I do think that's a good point, but that's, there's a little nuance that I kind of want to add there that I, I think I disagree with you whenever you suggest that Thomas Wayne has uh, Gotham City's uh, best interests in mind for running for office. I don't think he does. And maybe I'm wrong. I mean, we don't really know completely. Uh, we don't really get to hear a whole lot of, you know, his side of the story. But I don't think I buy that Thomas Wayne is necessarily on the side of the angels with his... Uh, mayoral campaign. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's that's just where I'm coming from. So, anyway, the ambiguity. Uh, uh, Doug goes on to say the ambiguity of Arthur's parentage. Was his mother crazy 
in claiming that Thomas was his father? Was Thomas telling the truth to Arthur when he confronted him? And Doug, I think, I think Thomas actually was telling the truth. I think uh, Arthur isn't really Thomas's son and that Penny is basically nuts. That's, that's what I think the real answer is. So anyway, moving right along, uh, Doug says, and at the end, we get the obligatory shooting of the Waynes for the umpteenth time. I guess the only way to do that differently is to splatter their blood on Bruce's face. And Doug, I kind of have to agree with you. And that really, for me, is the moment of the film where it felt kind of like there's some kind of studio fiddle fuckery going on to where some douchebag executive says, well, we need to make it clear that this isn't that uh, this is this does take place in the same universe as Batman and this character isn't the real Joker and all that just fucking bullshit. Uh, I don't know. I just I've got I mean, I understand that that at least the Todd Phillips was able to take that concept and do some stuff with it. And so I'm willing to consider the possibility that you know what? I might be wrong here, but I don't know, man. I just I just get the idea that that bit where Thomas and Martha Wayne get blown away, that probably was not in the original script. Now, Doug, I don't have special inside information or anything like that. I just find it a little hard to believe that that was what Phillips originally wanted to do in the film. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I just doubt it. So, anyway. Doug uh, wraps everything up by saying, I definitely want to see this film again, probably when it comes out on Blu-ray. In the meantime, I'm looking forward to episode 300 of the podcast. Signed, your loyal listener, Doug Meacher. And Doug, uh, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to write in. One of the reasons why I kind of wanted to give your email a little bit of special focus here is I figured, you know what, maybe with this episode, this is going to be a good way for me to just kind of put a bow around the Joker discussion, at least for the time being, and then, as you say, revisit it when the Blu-ray comes out. But nevertheless, I did want this to be kind of a standalone piece just so I can get some additional Joker thoughts out there before backing away from this subject for at least the next several months and letting my listeners just kind of get their breath back and maybe listen to other shows about other subjects. So that's the idea. So anyway, but uh, Doug, I just want to uh, thank you for taking the time to write in. Always love hearing from you. Always love getting emails from you. And so uh, I, I just really appreciate you taking the time to do this. So I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So bye, everybody. I will see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. 
The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>